You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcasts, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. The theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Chapter 5 of The Great Divorce, we come to the chapter where I started to really pay attention when I was reading this for the first time. So this might be my favorite chapter in the entire book of The Great Divorce. Forrest, I don't know that you agree with that. Uh, I appreciate you loving this chapter. <laughs> okay, very much. So It's a good one, but yeah. Yeah. We continue, and just to recap, the first three chapters were about Greytown and getting out of Greytown, going into the solid land. Last chapter, chapter four, we had a great conversation between a uh, guy in heaven who murdered someone and someone who was offended by the fact that the murderer got into heaven and he didn't. This chapter is about really a bishop. I said each of these chapters, starting with chapter four, C.S. Lewis is talking about individual people. And in each chapter, I imagine that Lewis has someone in mind when he's writing this book. There is no doubt in my mind that he knows someone who he is intentionally referencing in chapter five, because I know people like this. And had I written this chapter, I frankly think I would have written a chapter with a person in mind about it. So we're going to dive into it because I think this conversation is really When you're at sermons, yeah. like you, we talked about last episode, do you have somebody in mind? Like, do you have stories in mind or do you try to generalize that? How do you? I try to think about an entire group of people and kind of what they're struggling with. So I try to actually not make it personal. This is really my difficulty. And I wonder if this was Lewis's difficulty writing this book is you don't want to lose your own soul when you're calling out other people. Right. You don't yeah. want to, as you're preaching or teaching or talking about stuff, you don't want to be trying to bludgeon somebody else. You want to actually help them along. And it's rarely helpful to call someone out in a big room and you know that they're squirming in there. There have been moments where like, because we plan things out a long way in advance yeah. at our church. So like six months ago, I will have written a sermon and then someone comes in and they're asking me a question and it turns out, I've already planned on preaching on that topic. I actually hate those Sundays the most because I don't like want- they meet with you on Friday and then they show up on Sunday. <laughs> because many of the issues that happen with regular people are the same. Yeah. And so, you know, the frustration like in chapter four about, hey, how did they get ahead and I didn't when they were worse than I am, right? Or when they're a right. worse person, whatever it is, that's a universal thing. So in this chapter, we're going to talk about a bishop who misses the right trajectory of being a bishop. And I wonder if Lewis was writing this and thinking, how do I make sure that I'm not just ridiculing them? How do I actually hold my own pride in check when I'm writing this? So 
there begins again in chapter five, a discussion of the environment and the world they're in. For instance, there's actually two velvet-footed lions that come bouncing in the open space, which I'd be terrified of lions, (laughs) period. But can you imagine, like the way he set this up is the main character, the narrator, who we don't know anything really about yet at the moment, is a ghost. I would still be afraid of lions if I was a ghost. I love how it just kind of moves past that. Like, oh, there's two velvet-footed lions. I'm going to go over here. That's right. And then the conversation changes, and that's all you hear about it. We will, by the way, talk about that again in Chapter 6 of next episode. We're going to talk about, like, the world and the environment because there's an entire chapter dedicated to it. But this one is there's another bright person. Last chapter, he called it a solid person. This one's a bright person who's in conversation with a ghost. And here's a description of the ghost. And it says, it was that fat ghost. I love the fact that he just chooses to call a ghost fat. Like, I don't know why, but Lewis decides he's going to keep his fatness in hell. I don't know. It was that fat ghost with the cultured voice who had addressed me in the bus. And it seemed to be wearing gaiters. When I first read this, okay, I don't know what a gaiter is. And I just moved on. I was thinking waiters. Waiters like going fishing or something. Well, so the book I'm using today is a book of a friend of ours who's a was a former English teacher. And I actually prefer this book. I really want to steal all of her books because she wrote her own notations in it. <laughs> and her notation, this is uh, Aaron's notations, it says, a gator is a lower leg covering buttoned up on the side and worn as part of the traditional costume of an Anglican bishop. When I read the <laughs> book, I clearly didn't get that it was a bishop until way later in the conversation. But apparently, even on the first little bit of this, when they first introduced the fat ghost, they want you to know this guy's a bishop and the bishop's in hell. It's why, by the way, I just think there's no way Lewis doesn't know a bishop who he has in mind, who likes to wear these gaiters and is fat. And I can just picture, (laughs) I can just picture like writing down a description of someone he knows. So the uh, ghost guy does not seem to be ashamed of his ghostness at all and begins with, My dear boy, I'm delighted to see you, it was saying to the spirit who is naked and almost blindingly white. I was talking to your poor father the other day and wondering where you were. And the solid person says, you didn't bring him? And then the ghost says, well, no, he lives a long way from the bus. To be quite frank, he's getting a little eccentric lately, a little difficult, losing his grip. He was never prepared to make any great efforts, you know. And then you realize that these two people knew each other in their life. Ah, Dick. So Dick is the name of the guy who is in heaven. Dick's in heaven. And it says, I shall never forget some of our talks. I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became, and this is a really important phrase for the setup of this dialogue. You became rather narrow-minded towards the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. And the solid person says, well, what do you mean? The ghost says, well, it's obvious by now, isn't it, that you weren't quite right. Why, my dear boy, you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. Lewis has set this up where this gentleman wearing the costume, wearing the outfit of a bishop, who we discover later is, has no idea where he's been. He's been in hell and literally has no idea that it's happening and is telling someone in heaven, well, you are clearly wrong. You're narrow-minded. It is the most interesting setup. And maybe this is only interesting. I'm kind of curious, Forrest, about your assessment from the secular world because you didn't go to seminary and that's one of the reasons why you're on this podcast is you bring the normal perspective to it. (laughs) Like for people who've been to seminary, the idea of being narrow-minded and that kind of challenge in that setup, that's actually like a great curse in the academic world is, oh, well, you don't want to be narrow-minded. You need to be broad-minded for all the rest of this. Except he was wrong, right? Like the narrow-minded way was right and the broad-minded way was wrong. 
And I think this setup is like ridiculing all of his colleagues at Oxford, all of the bishops that he knows who's like, he's setting it up this way. I don't know if that narrow-minded, broad-minded is something that most people think about. I think it's the same in most situations. I think being called narrow-minded in any setting is not a, yeah, I don't say that as good. Except what Lewis is getting to is, in the end of all things, narrow-minded is actually just true because you figured out out of all the open-minded things what things are true and what things are not. And it's just really funny to have the guy in hell calling the guy in heaven narrow-minded. It also it comes full circle at the end of the chapter whenever you start figuring out, out about answers and what you're actually seeking. That's right. So they have this discussion about the Greytown. And in the first few chapters when they describe Greytown, the fear on the bus is they're having a discussion about why it's gray. And they're saying that it's actually going to be evening and the town is going to go into darkness and night. Even the sunset, even the like evening is going to come to an end. But the ghost says, oh, you mean that gray town with its continual hope of morning, with its field for indefinite progress is in a sense heaven, if only we have the eyes to see it. So the question from the solid person is, where do you think you've been? And he goes, oh, you mean that horrible place back there is actually heaven if you look at it with the right lens. And he goes, I don't mean that at all. Is it possible you don't know where you've been? And the ghost goes, well, now that you mention it, I don't think we've ever given it a name. What do you call it? And very bluntly, very clearly, the solid person says, we call it hell. That's the first time in the book you get a very clear definition of what Greytown is. Whenever I was reading this, I was thinking about the disconnect I see a lot of times in your case, like with preachers and people sitting in the congregation where the preacher knows so much like this, the person in heaven knows so much person in the congregation knows what they know. And sometimes like you just can't connect. I say it's like a mathematician trying to explain to somebody that is learning how to add and subtract, how to add and subtract. It's so much easier for the first grader to teach a kindergartner how to add and subtract than it would be you know, the mathematician that knows, you know, 15 levels past that. This is, this is the first time I start thinking that way in the book. They just have such different worlds. But it's not that the solid person's wrong. It's that the guy in hell has no mechanism to understand yes. what's actually being presented. Yeah. Which, frankly, is the way I feel every week, right? Like, I think your analogy of, like, a preacher who goes, no, 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 there is heaven right in front of you. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. brunch. What, what's what's <laughs> yeah. the brunch strategy? <laughs> Anyway, so the guy from Greytown says, there's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I do not need to be orthodox. I may not be very orthodox in your sense of the word, but I do think these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. And the response is, discuss hell reverently? I meant what I said. You have been in hell. Though if you don't go back, you call it purgatory. All right, so this is when I was like first reading this at 15 and a light bulb went off in my head. And it changed the way I thought about heaven and hell and purgatory. So if you didn't grow up Catholic and you grew up more in the kind of Baptist or Protestant uh, traditions, Methodist, et cetera, we don't talk much about purgatory. Martin Luther like jettisoned that entire framework in the 16th century. But in the Catholic world, you have an entire setup. There are some biblical reasons for it where you have like a purifying fire 
So you have hell where people stay indefinitely. You have heaven, which is the end goal and the ideal goal for everybody, but not everyone's going to get there. And then you have this place in the middle that is a place of refining fire. So the biblical passages for it are those places where they talk about you must go through fire. You must be purified in order to do it, where literally our sins are burned off. And in the metaphor of like purifying silver or gold or any of the rest of that. And so that purgatory thing is not something that Protestants have talked about for 500 years. But it is interesting that there can be a way that actually both Protestants and Catholics are right. They actually go into this in a later chapter, but this is the first clue in this book that actually hell is something that we choose. And if in this setup with a great divorce, if they choose heaven, let's say that this ghost decides to actually choose what the last cat chapter guy did. Just be happy. Just be happy. Come with me. Don't worry about it. Just Forget all, your, yeah. forget all your gripes and just release all your burden and choose joy. If this guy actually does it, that will not have been seen to be hell because it will have been temporary. It would have actually been a purging and a refining fire that he could have come out of. Didn't Abraham Lincoln have a quote that most people are about as happy as they choose to be? I think he did. I think that's one of those things that like you do on Google and it says, <laughs> there's no proof Abraham yeah. Lincoln said to this. They just put it on a meme to make it look important. I don't know. We'll get back to you in future chapters on that one. The conversation continues. And the reason he says, go on, my dear boy, go on. That is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why. On your view, I was sent there. I'm not angry. And the response is, but don't you know you were sent there because you are an apostate? An apostate is one who rejects their faith, someone who had faith and clearly rejects it. I feel like this book needs footnotes at the bottom of every page. It just gives me definitions of words so I can... Like Gator? Yeah, uh, like Gator and Gator apostate, and apostate and bishopric. and. Well, we're about to get to that. So the word bishopric is where we discover that it's not just the Gators that make him into a bishop. He actually is. So the bishop in hell says, do you believe that people are penalized for their honest opinions? And there's a large discussion here about whether or not there are sins of the intellect, meaning that like if you, you know, have an honest opinion that there is no God or that you believed in God and you fell away, that there should be no penalty for humans just having a different opinion about eternity or God or whatever the rest of that is. And what I find fascinating in this, because I get this question a lot, this is a really practical question about wait a minute, so do they go to hell if they don't say this? Like, if they don't say a four-sentence prayer, does that mean hell is going to be what they get? Or if they said it when they were a teenager and then they fall away, what happens then? And what's fascinating, what I particularly love about this chapter is it's not just a simple question of once he renounced it. He was seeking after God and then he renounced it. And that was a pure and honest intellectual moment of integrity because he could no longer stand for what he didn't believe. Where the conversation goes is, it's not really just about sins of the intellect. It's about what he chose, what his heart was. The ghost says, honest opinions fearlessly followed. They are not sins. And the response from the solid person is, I know we used to talk that way. I did too until the end of my life when I became what you call narrow. It turns on what are honest opinions. And the guy says, well, mine certainly were. They were not only honest, but heroic. I asserted them fearlessly. And then here you get to the Jesus section of this, because really there hasn't been much about Jesus yet in the whole book. Yeah. It says, when the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God has given me, I openly rejected it. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole chapter. I took every risk. 
I love this part. This is my favorite. (laughs) This is my favorite. This is why I love this entire chapter is the response. What risk? What was it all likely to come of it except what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations, and finally a bishopric. A bishopric is just the rank of bishop. It just means you became a bishop because you rejected the divinity of Jesus, because you rejected the resurrection of Christ, which I think I love this chapter because I believe there are a lot of people who are like, I defended something heroically. And we look back historically on some moments where Christians really did. And we imagine ourselves to be Martin Luther King Jr. Or we imagine ourselves to be Martin Luther. Or we imagine ourselves to be people who sacrificed everything for it. When mostly, and this is what he accuses here, is our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. This is a 60-plus-year-old book. That's, yeah, when I read that, I was thinking, this book was written in the 40s? 1940s. Yeah. But it's like an almost an 80-year-old book, and we are not past a world in which everyone is looking at, well, what's modern and current and seems modern and successful, and I'm going to do that. I don't care if I believe it or not, but this is clearly what's going to get there. It's not just about apostate, meaning that he really struggled with the resurrection of Jesus. It was, it seemed quite financially successful and career-wise successful to reject the resurrection of Jesus. And so I did it, and it did it in such a way that we presented it as heroic and brilliant and all the rest of it. And it's like you get to heaven and God looks at you and goes, did you really risk anything? We'd skip this in the last chapter, but there's a sentence that it seems it just kind of stuck in there, but it stood out to me a lot was there are no private affairs. And he says, you know, how can you talk to me about my private affairs? And he said, there are no private affairs. And you realize in the end, God knows your heart. That theme continues through the rest of this. Because when you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to hide why you actually did anything, right? Like, it's not like you're going to be able to stand in front of God himself and say, well, I did that out of fearless integrity. You're going to look at Jesus and go, yeah, okay, I, I did that for my own benefit. I, I did that because it got me my promotion. I did that because it got me that next step. That's like my people aren't stupid theory. Okay, Forrest, you got to now explain your people aren't stupid theory. So I get a lot of pushback on my theory, but I think people can be ignorant about things where they don't know it. But when it's about themselves and what they're doing and how they're doing, or you know, if you ask somebody, how did you do in that? If they really peel back and get to the heart of it, they can tell you what it was. I think they know. I think we don't admit it to ourselves a lot, but I think if you ask the right questions and you get at the heart of it, I know what I did. I think we all know it. Like, I think if we were to all think about and write down our sins. So like you asked the question about when I preach and I, do I have people in mind? The truth is there are times where I have some people in mind that might be feeling such thing. But when you look at a thousand people in a room or whatever, like if you can get past the initial defensive response and get them to actually be honest with themselves, not even their spouse, because that's harder than a random person, right? Like it's harder, frankly, to be honest to a friend or yeah. to your spouse than it is some random stranger you meet at, you know, an airport bar or whatever, right? right? Like yeah. it's so vulnerable to actually admit such a thing. But if you can get past that defensiveness and say, what do you actually believe? Were you really doing this for your own benefit or were you doing this for someone else? Almost everyone will be able to come up with 
exactly what it is. Yes. And I believe that's the moment that we're all going to get when we face Jesus. In this book, it says, the point is, this is the ghost again, that they were my honest opinion sincerely expressed. The point is that at some point in time, when you want to just be broad and you want to have all these different viewpoints and accept all different things, at some point in time, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as reality. And so the response from the solid person is fantastic in this. It says, all of that is over. We're not playing now. I've been talking of the past, yours and mine, only in order that you may turn from it forever. One wrench and the tooth will be out. You can begin as if nothing had ever gone wrong. White as snow. It's all true, you know. He is in me for you with that power. And I have come a long journey to meet you. You have seen hell. You are inside of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? And the response is, I'm not sure I've got the exact point you're trying to make. And the, the solid person says, I'm not trying to make any point. I'm telling you to repent and believe. There's this very simple sense of, listen, there are a lot of ways in which we can struggle with the resurrection, for instance, or struggle with faith or whatever it is. But there does need to come a point in time where we actually choose something that's true, where we actually move from open-mindedness to a specific point. I remember I was in college and they were talking about a particular issue, two girls who were friends of mine, and they both shared the same opinion. And they said, yay, let's high five for being open-minded. <laughs> they both agreed, found the other person agreed, and they went, hey, high five for open-mindedness. And I was like, that's not actually what that word means. What it generally means is they found an opinion that seemed modern and successful and they thought it was open-mindedness. But that could be true for atheism. That could be true for a whole host of things that until you meet God face to face, then you actually do have to choose. There is something real. God is real. Life is real. The resurrection is real. And at some point in time, you've got to move from that broadness of, I feel very modern and open-minded, which really mostly means a lot of times that you've just chosen the easier path of modernity and success when sometime you're going to actually have to choose Jesus. I like right here where very well said the other as if changing his plan. Will you believe in me? Like He's like, okay, this is not working. That's right. He's <laughs> like, can I change strategy and direction? Will you believe in me? Something you're looking at right now. Instead of this figment of this possible thing, it's, will you at least believe in the thing you're standing here talking to? And it says just, will you come to the mountains with me? Just forget all this baggage. Will you come to the mountains with me? There's a lot of continuing conversation about what truth is. And I want to read one comment before we end this podcast today, because I think this is brilliant. I hope it's the one I highlighted. Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> they keep going back and forth. And finally, the spirit says, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Was that the one you highlighted? Yeah. Excellent. Nailed it. Nailed it. I think that's where particularly for Lewis, who was a professor who lived in academia. I just love because there's a time when you ask questions because you wanted answers. And academia, frankly, is designed to keep asking questions because that's how you get a PhD. That's how you get your dissertation. You have to ask a question no one else has asked. Not because you need answers, because you need a dissertation. And not because you, you wanted answers, but because you need the next job or whatever it is. And the very simple hope is that we might once again ask questions because we actually want the answers. I love how this chapter ends with him stepping on the moving sidewalk at the airport version of the stream and busting. 
It says, so basically it didn't work. The bishop decides that he needs to go back down to hell because he has new things that he wants to present to his academic circle down there. He had a hell. paper he had to present. Yes. A paper he had to present. And the question is whether or not Jesus would have outgrown his narrow ideas had he not died at the age of 33, which is just a hilarious idea that God would have changed his mind. He'd have grown God. to his full person. You That's know, right. Grown up to. And then the chapter ends with the bishop walks off, says goodbye. Very interesting conversation. I've got to go out to present my paper back in hell. That's way more important than me choosing heaven, which is hilarious. And then the narrator starts walking along. And if the grass were hard as rock, he thought it would not be the water hard enough to walk on. I tried it with one foot and my foot did not go in. And so he stepped boldly on the surface and he forgot that it was to me solid but it wasn't less rapid in motion. <laughs> and so it's like he moved on a walking sidewalk of the river and bus it, which is a nice preface for next week because next week we're going to talk about the nature of the world that we're in. I do want to end. I know there's a lot of conversation on this particular discussion with the bishop, and this is one of our longer episodes. But that question of what was inquiry for when you were a child, it was for truth. So what is it now? Are you asking questions because you feel like it's modern and successful? Are you not choosing God or choosing hope or faith because you feel like you're actually seeking questions or because it's just fun to ask questions and you've lost the purpose of what questions are for? That, it seems to me, is this chapter, and I'm confident C.S. Lewis has at least one person in mind because I know I do. Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of the waste, keep me steady in the face of.